as well. So we just want to just start by praying, God, continue to have your way. Continue to speak through your word. Holy Spirit, we welcome you so much. We need you so much to bring that refreshing, to bring that healing, to bring that peace that transcends all understanding, to bring that direction and equipping and correction. We just say, here we are, Lord. Have your way. Thank you that your word is true nourishment. It's a sword in our hands. Just pray your word may go out. And as you promised it would, may it not return to you void. Amen. Good. So we're in a series called Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, I thought Simon did such a great job. I had a listen to his preach last Sunday. Sorry I couldn't be with you last Sunday. Really missed meeting with you guys. Um, but it was, it was really good to uh, be with Everyday Sutton. Um, they send their love and their greetings. Great to see some familiar faces. For those who don't know, we were planted from the same church as Everyday Sutton. And they meet where we used to meet. Uh, in the school hall. So it was very deja vu. It was like winding the clock back. But actually, God's doing a new thing with them. And I'm so pleased that we are partnering as churches together for the kingdom of God. And we have, as, as churches in Sutton, a wonderful sense of unity and partnership because it's not about individual churches, it's about the kingdom of God. It's about Jesus building his capital C church in this land. Great. So as I said, I, I thought Simon did a great job setting up this series. The, the fact is, Jesus is the central theme. He is the central figure throughout the entire Bible. God is not the God of the Old Testament, and then suddenly there's a God of the New Testament, and God of the Old was all about judgment, and the God of the New is all about grace. No, no, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. <clears throat> As Jesus himself said to a bunch of disbelieving Jews in John 5, he said, look, you, you pour over these scriptures, basically our Old Testament, you pour over them because you presume by, by, by them you are saved. By them you possess eternal life. And he says, but actually, these very words are about me. They're about me. And I love how the message puts it. It says, you miss the wood for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And again, later on, the resurrected Jesus Christ walks with these two disciples on the Emmaus Road, Luke 24, and it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, concerning him. Jesus is the central theme from beginning to end. And we don't want to miss the wood for the trees, do we? This, this amazing story of God's love and redemption through Jesus Christ. And I, I think Simon mentioned this last time, but we, in the Old Testament, we sometimes see Jesus uh, present, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Before, obviously, the first Christmas, he was pre-incarnate, but he was still there. John 1 says he was right there in creation. In fact, it was through him that God the Father created the earth. 
And at times, the New Testament writers say, no, no, Jesus was there, present in the Old Testament scriptures. At other times, we see him promised. Time and time again, through the minor and major prophets and through the Psalms, the promise of Jesus, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And at other times, we see him patterned. Again, when Simon was looking at Adam, sort of contrasting Adam with Jesus, again, who the New Testament writers call the second Adam, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. So we see this patterning at times, and and what we're looking at this morning is also a pattern, a type of Christ, a pre-echo, if you like, of the one in whom all Scripture talks about. Some of you will know I used to work in a recording industry, and um, I was in the days, showing my age, where we used to record on tape, good old analog tape. It was two inches thick, had 24 tracks on it, used to run at 15 inches a second or 30 inches a second. And what we used to find is if a tape had been stored for a long time and then pulled back out and put on a tape machine, what would have happened is the sound, the magnetic sound, had transferred itself onto the layer behind and sometimes onto the layer behind that. And so what you'd get when you put this reel of tape back on the tape machine is you'd hear a little pre-echo of what the sound would become. So if it was a snare drum, you'd hear this little thump. And then the next time around, thump, until you get the crack of the snare. And it was really annoying because it kind of messed up your recording. And so we had to, you know, you always reel the tape tail out to stop that happening. But it would be this pre-echo, this little ripple of what was to come. And we see these little echoes, these pre-echoes throughout Scripture before the main event, Jesus coming to earth, taking on human flesh, living the perfect life, dying the death we should have died, and raising up to new life. We see these pre-echoes throughout Scripture. And one of those is the story of the flood. It's what we're looking at. Genesis 6 to 9. Don't have time to read all four chapters. Please do read it. It's it's probably the most well-known Bible story, isn't it? As featured in every single children's Bible. It's not a children's Bible unless it has Noah's Ark in. It's featured on pretty much every nursery or play school wall because it's all got the right ingredients, hasn't it? It's got rainbows and a floating zoo and catchy songs, you know, the animals went in two by two, hurrah, you know, it's, it's lovely. Actually, it's not. It's a weird thing to put on a playgroup or a, a nursery wall, because the reality of it, of course, is that it is a, it was an epic judgment on mankind, devastating, difficult to stomach, catastrophic Judgment against an increasingly wicked and fallen world. In fact, such was the destruction that happened during the flood that pretty much every ancient civilization has some record of this flood. Particularly around Mesopotamia, around Iraq, what we call Iraq now. These ancient civilizations all mention this catastrophic flood. So rather than pretty rainbows and floating zoos, we need to see it for what it is. 
sobering, devastating judgment. But it is also, praise God, a story of salvation, a story of God's grace in the midst of judgment. So as we go through this, do keep those two threads of judgment, but also grace to the fore. As I said, we don't have time to go through all of it, particularly now. We're running a little bit late, but that's fine. God's in charge. But what we're going to do, I just want to zoom in, particularly to chapter six, and draw out six key points that I feel God has certainly highlighted to me as I've gone through this. And, and then we can kind of zoom out a little bit and see this story in the context, the wider context of Scripture. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the detail we can lose perspective. It's a bit like Google Maps. I love Google Maps. Wherever I go, I'm going somewhere new, I will always Google walk the area. Because you get a feel for the place before you actually go. You get to see the landmarks. You get to see the shop fronts. You go, oh, it's that corner next to Carpet Right or wherever it may be. But sometimes you can be so zoomed in, you can lose your bearings and go, whoa, I don't know where I am now. What street's this? And so you have to zoom back out again and get a sense of context, get a sense of perspective and go, oh, yeah, there, there, there's, there's Victoria, there's London Bridge. I know where I am now. And so we're going to be doing a bit of that. We're going to be zooming into the story, looking at the detail, but then zooming out the wider context of Scripture to get our bearings and get perspective on this. Okay? So let's just read. I'm going to read from verse 5 of chapter 6. It should come up there as well. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the, on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the Lord's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch. And he gives Noah detailed instructions on how to build this container, this ship, this boat. Verse 17, everything on earth will perish. Imagine hearing those words for the first time. Everything, life as you know it, is going to come to an end. You know, we, we can get so familiar with the story of Noah, it's, we can miss some of the, the the impact it must have had. Everything on the earth is going to perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then verse 22 simply says, Noah did everything 
just as God commanded him. Incredible. I mean, even that statement is quite a statement, isn't it? After hearing this devastating news, and then these detailed instructions, don't cut a corner, please don't cut any corners, you will probably sink. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. First thing that strikes me when I come back to this story is that our sin matters to God. Injustice matters to God. Whether that's our sin or sins done against us, it matters to God. And God went from declaring everything was good, Genesis 1 and 2, to getting to this point here in Genesis 6 of regretting even making mankind. And I think it's important to point out that it wasn't as if God was unaware that this was going to happen. He wasn't taken by surprise at where we now were in Genesis 6. He wasn't like, ah, oh, that's, that's a shame. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Oh, I wouldn't have bothered making them if I'd known. No, no, far from it. Because we know that the plan of God was always salvation through Jesus Christ. That was always the plan. We know, zooming out, John tells us in Revelation 13, verse 8, that Jesus is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the, of the earth. Before anything was created, Jesus was to be the lamb slain for us. That is amazing, isn't it? God knows the beginning from the end. He knew every little detail of every little thing that was going to happen. And he still created the earth anyway. Jesus knew that he would one day give his life for the very earth that was created through him. The very earth that he sustains. He did it knowing that he was going to have to give his life for this. C.S. Lewis once said, God knew the cost of our free will and he still thought us worth it. God's been speaking a lot to us about love, acceptance. Even though we're struggling, going through difficult times, some of us, how loved are you? That he knew the outcome. He knew this day would come. He knew Jesus would have to die, and he still thought us worth it. You know, the flood wasn't some knee-jerk reaction of an angry God. It wasn't like some potter getting frustrated and throwing his clay against the wall because it wasn't coming out right. That was not the flood, and that is not our God. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction because things weren't going to plan. No, God knew and he counted the cost before he had even started. And he thought us worth it. You know, and if anything, when you're reading through those early chapters of Genesis, you, actually our thoughts should be, why did he leave it so long? You know, we read Genesis 5, I think probably covers more time than most chapters. There's an epic amount of time in Genesis 5 that's covered. It's, it's a genealogy, generation after generation after generation, increasing evil and wickedness in the world. 
And you could say, well, why did God leave it so long? Because Psalm 103 says he's compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. Even in this, he doesn't harbor his anger forever. I am so grateful for that. But what that statement, God regretted even making mankind shows to me is that despite knowing all of this, sin still hurts him. He still feels it. His heart, it says, was deeply troubled. We have a God who feels. What we do matters, not just to us, but to him as well. You know, he rejoices over us. He also weeps over us. You know, seeing this earth, rather than being filled with the glory of the Lord, reflecting his, his, his creative glory and subduing it and bringing order out of chaos, instead what we see is mankind reflecting the fallen sinful nature within and bringing chaos and destruction rather than glory and order. And so God brought judgment, a reboot it's interesting, where once he had separated the land from the waters, he now covered the land with the waters. A reboot. Where he had once brought out life, he was going to end life. And you know what? God's judgment is really not something we talk a lot about, is it? We don't tend to shout a lot about hellfire and brimstone. We do talk a lot about grace, which is good and right. And we talk a lot about God's love. And yet, God's flood that he brought shows us that he is a God of justice. You know, he is set apart. He is holy. Even just the words that were coming this morning, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. The only way we can approach his throne is because of Jesus. He is totally holy. By his very nature, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished because that would go against who he is, righteous. And so the flood was a righteous judgment. But what it points to actually is a greater judgment to come where one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And, you know, I, and maybe the church has dialed back on, on, on talking about this truth. So I say it's a lot easier to talk about love without talking about judgment. But, but stories like the flood don't allow us to ignore this truth. Our sin has consequences. And it requires judgment. As Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. It's a very simple equation, isn't it? Sin equals death. That's how it is. But I, for one, am so glad Romans 6.23 doesn't end there. Because it says, but. There are certain verses in Scripture where everything hangs, everything changes on that little word, but. <laughs> but the gift of God is eternal life 
through Jesus Christ. What we earn, what we deserve is death. What we are given, what we can never earn is eternal life in Jesus Christ. That changes everything. And here we see that little word, but, in verse 8 of chapter 6. God says, I'm going to wipe out mankind, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It reminds me again of another pivotal little word, but. Ephesians 2 describes us as dead in our transgressions and sins, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ, even when we were still dead in our sin. It is by grace you have been saved. That changes everything. You know, we need to talk about judgment because we need to talk about grace. Why do we need God's grace if there is no judgment? Why do we need a savior if there is nothing to be saved from? We can't dial back on the truth that sin equals death. But because God is rich in mercy, through Jesus Christ we can know eternal life. The flood shows he is a God of justice. Thirdly, the flood shows he is a God of grace. He is a God of grace. And, and here with Noah, God's grace changes everything. Again, it's, po- it's important to point out, Noah wasn't picked because he was without sin and therefore deserved to be saved. Noah did not deserve to be saved. And sometimes when you read through, you know, he was righteous in the eyes of you think, whoa, he deserves to be saved. No, he didn't, because as every child of Adam, we are inherently sinful. We are born fallen. We need a savior. No one is without sin except for Jesus. Hebrews 4, who was tempted in every way like we were, yet is without sin. So Noah was still fallen, still sinful. And we see that so clearly later on in in chapter 9, even after the flood, even after God has rescued him and his family, the doors open, they start to start this new life. I mean, talk about an epic to-do list. They start planting vineyards. Noah gets drunk. He's found, passed out, naked, shameful. Kind of sums up man's best efforts. Here he was, the most righteous man, drunk, naked. And ashamed. <laughs> kind of shows, shows our best efforts, doesn't it? So what does it mean when Noah was described as, as righteous? Well, again, let's Google zoom out a little bit further. Hebrews 11 tells us that Noah's righteousness was credited to him by faith. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It wasn't about his track record 
and how sinless he had been. It was actually more to do about his faith in God, that despite all the people who around him had turned their back on God, had rejected him, he still feared God. He still sought to obey him. And that was credited to him as righteousness. It was looking ahead to the time when in Jesus, we would be credited with his righteousness through our faith in him. It was looking ahead to that time. So we are, Jesus credits us with his righteousness because we put our faith in him. Yeah? It's not because we're sinless and we live sinless lives. It's because Jesus lived a sinless life. And our faith in him is, is then credited to us as for his righteousness. Does that make sense? So Noah was looking ahead. He put his faith in God and it was credited to him. Righteousness was credited to him. You know, on the cross, God's righteous judgment is in full view. Penalty of sin is death, and there it is on the cross. But there too, in full view, is God's grace because it's Jesus there and not me or you. The cross demonstrates so vividly judgment and grace. And we see that here in the flood as well. Noah and his family were sinners, but sinners who trusted in a holy, awesome God. And so in his grace, God told them to build an ark. And with this ark, we can so clearly see a depiction of Jesus. The ark shows us Jesus. You know, you can read so much into this, really. I mean, even words like the ark was covered in pitch. That covered is the same word as atonement, how Jesus covers our sins. There's, there's lots of parallels here. But I, I just think so vividly, you know, it's as the ark takes the hit, as, as the storms of God's judgment rain down upon it, so Noah and his family are safe inside. And in the same way, Jesus took the full wrath of the judgment of God. As, as blows rained down on him, we are secure in Christ. The ark is, is just a pre-echo, a foreshadow, really, of God's judgment and grace that is ultimately and graphically seen on the cross. It's a foreshadow of that. And just as the ark was the only means of salvation, there were no other options. Well, you can take the ark or, or maybe you can make something yourself. There were no other salvation options. There was only one doorway in. There was only one ark. And the same is true with our eternal salvation. There is only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the only means of salvation. You know, Peter actually takes this a step further in, in 1 Peter 3. It's, it's a verse that actually has caused a lot of complication and confusion. But he compares the flood to baptism. But the important thing is, it's not the water that saves us. In fact, the water brought death in the flood. But it's the ark that saved Noah. And in the same way, Jesus leads us through the waters and up to eternal life. So there's this sense of dying, our old sinful self dying in the water and us being raised to new life through the water in Christ. 
He is the door. He is the way, the only way. And it's, it's through faith in Jesus. But all who call on his name will be saved. You know, and when we stand before that holy judge, those that call on his name, they're going to be found in Jesus, our ark. Takes us to fifth point. I'm trying to rattle on quite quickly here. Fifthly, the flood shows us the world needs to hear Jesus. The world needs to hear about him. This gospel message is vitally urgent. I don't think we need kind of convincing of the state of our world, our broken nation, divided nation, just, just the state of what, what we're living in. And, and I guess Noah at times must have felt pretty desperate, pretty frustrated that he's telling his neighbors, he's telling his friends, listen to me, the rains are going to come, the flood is coming. And, and they laughed and derided and called him fools. Again, as we zoom out, we can see the same is true for us. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says the message of the cross is what? Foolishness for those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Noah must have been labeled a fool right up until the day God closed the door. It's telling that he is the only, him and his family were the only people. No one else came with them. No one else. You know, it's a lesson in perseverance. We live in a world that has no idea it needs saving or even that it's even lost. No idea that it's, it, it, it's lost. No idea that the day will come where everyone will have to stand before a holy judge. In Jesus' own words, Matthew 24, verse 37 to 39 says this, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, right up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And Jesus himself says, that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That is sobering, isn't it? That is how it will be. We need to tell the world. The world needs to hear this message of grace, this message of salvation. You know, I, I recently saw a brilliant 60-minute, sorry, 60-second gospel presentation by Glenn Shrivener. I don't know if you know him. He's, he's, he's a very gifted poet, author, speaker. But in this 90-second gospel presentation, he describes the human race as being like a Christmas tree. On the outside, all covered in lights, very festive, green and beautiful, tinsel sparkling, surrounded by friends and food and fun. It's great. But actually, it's dead. It is totally cut off from its life source. And usually, some Saturday in January, every year it will be thrown out. Needless and bare and brown. Yet the gospel says God offers us a chance to be grafted back in to him, the source of life. We're all born spiritually dead, cut off from the source of life. 
And Jesus offers us a chance to be grafted back in to the source of life itself. You know, that we, we, there are people all around us, aren't there? Outwardly, radiant, successful, beautiful, surrounding themselves with friends and fun and food, but are spiritually dead, cut off from the very source of life. You know, we, we, we live in a world where, where people do, as was prophesied in Scripture, call evil good and call good evil. We live in a world where people are, are redefining, God, redefining God's ways under the name of progress. We, we live in a world who's, who's lost so much hope that every 40 seconds someone takes their life just sobering. We, we live in a world where hundreds of thousands of lives are cut short before they're even born. As a church, we need to sense the urgency of the gospel. It needs to be front and central of everything we are and everything we do. You know, wherever God has placed you, in your workplace, in your school, with your neighborhood, it's that you're there for a reason. You're there for a reason. And, and I, we need to be deeply troubled, like God was and is. Deeply troubled in our hearts, because God is. It's his will that none should perish. None should perish. You know, we, we need to pray that dangerous prayer again. God, break my heart for what breaks yours. I feel God has put burdens on different people, and maybe those burdens you just put on the back burner. I just believe God's telling us to, to get those burdens back, to be broken again, to be fully persuaded again to give ourselves to that particular area that he's given us. You know, as we, as we look around and see the hollowness and, and brokenness, we need to ask, Holy Spirit, come, embolden me again. Impassion me again for your name. For the lost. You're passionate. He's a jealous God. He's passionate. He's zealous for what is his. And the earth is the Lord's. He is passionate. He is zealous for this earth. Moving to the final point I just wanted to bring. Finally, the flood shows us that God is a God of covenant. He is a God of promise. Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. You know, the, the flood was a reboot, if you like, and not a complete reinstall. Because God had promised that from the seed of Eve would come one who would rescue the world, who would crush the serpent's head. And God is a God who keeps his promises. And so he reestablishes that covenant with Noah. And we see him reestablish it time and time again, develops it with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right through until Jesus finally comes and establishes a new covenant that he says is a covenant in his blood. And when Noah finally is let out from the ark, he, he must have sensed there is something about sacrifice that has opened the way to salvation because he immediately sets up an altar and some of the clean animals he then sacrifices to God. 
There must have been some sense there's a shedding of blood here. There's, there's, there's a sacrifice that needs to be done. It's pointing, obviously, to the one who sacrificed his life for us all, Jesus Christ. It's pointing to that thing where this is the covenant. He is the one. He is the one. I promised about right back in Genesis 3. Reestablishes it with Noah here. And he famously sets that rainbow in the sky. Covenant promise never to flood the earth in that way again. And, and he reestablishes the same cultural mandate that he gave Adam and Eve. He says the same thing to Noah. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. God is a God of promise. He is a faithful God who keeps his covenant. And again, as we zoom out, we get to Isaiah 54. Verse 8 to 10, he says, To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you. He's speaking to a, a broken people who are in captivity. I swore not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. God does not treat us as our sins deserve, but offers us salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, our true ark. I'd love us just to be able to bring all that God has been saying to us this morning about his love, about his compassion, about the urgency for the gospel. I really feel some of you are in a broken place because he wants to use that brokenness for his glory. Because he can shine his light through those broken places. You can draw alongside others with an empathy and an understanding that others cannot. I believe for others, God has given you burdens that have lied dormant. And I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting to stir those up afresh. To get them off the back burner and say, God, what do you want me to do with this? I'm going to just pray for us. Father, I pray as a church, we'll be those who walk like Noah did in obedience to you. To walk like Noah did in faith. To walk like Noah did against a backdrop of a world that has rejected you. To speak up for truth. To speak up about your master plan of salvation. Because we know you alone are our salvation. And through you alone we find grace and forgiveness. Come Holy Spirit as we worship you. Why don't we just stand to our feet if we're able?